The Secrets of Movies and TV Shows is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Movies and TV Shows. Hello, I'm Thomas Salerno, and you're listening to the secrets of our favorite bad movies. Those guilty pleasure films that we can't just help enjoying. And joining me today on the panel are Victor Lambs. Hello, Victor. Hey, Thomas. And Jimmy Aiken. Hey there, Jimmy. Howdy, folks. And be sure to follow the secrets of movies and TV shows. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Pocket Casts, or your favorite podcast app of choice. And you can also follow along with the show on the StarQuest YouTube channel. And please do us a favor by sharing the podcast with all your friends because we've got a slate of great movies and shows to discuss on the podcast very soon. Of course, today we're doing bad films. And you can uh, also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash Media, or on Twitter slash X where we are at SQPN and Instagram where we are at StarQuest Network. So how I'm planning to kind of do this today is that we're just going to go around the panel and talk about our individual, like, favorite, so bad it's good movies one at a time. And uh, if we run out of time, we will do, we'll save our other picks for kind of a lightning round at the end. But uh, Victor, let's start with you. What's your first pick? For favorite, so bad it's good movies. Yeah, so we'll start off with a, a little light uh, musical comedy called The Pirate <laughs> Movie. And that's its name, The Pirate Movie. And uh, what it is, is it's a 1982 Australian musical comedy uh, that is based on The Pirates of Penzance by Gilbert and Sullivan. Nice. I am the very model of a modern major general, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So Ted Hamilton, who uh, is an Australian actor, but had been playing the Pirate King in the Broadway version of the Pirates of Penzance at this time, uh, decided that he wanted to to make an updated version of it, kind of like a, a Frankie Avalon and Net Funicello beach picture version of it. And and so he recruited the the top two teen icons and heartthrobs of of the age, which were Christy McNichol. And Christopher Adkins, who had uh, Christopher Adkins had just starred in The Secret of the Blue Lagoon uh, with Brooke Shields, got them to Australia, had one of his friends write the the screenplay, uh, who turned it around in about four days, and basically filmed it. They went through a couple of directors as they were filming it. The movie came out. It opened in I think 1982 against the re-release of Star Wars and a bunch of other Wow <laughs> Officer and the Gentleman, a bunch of other big movies. Yeah, sank very quickly. Reviewers hated it. Leonard Malton uh, declared it a bomb. But audiences audiences liked it. They liked the updated humor. They uh, rewrote and updated some of the lyrics to, to the original songs, added a whole bunch of new songs to it. And it plays out kind of like a goofy um, Marx Brothers screwball comedy, but uh, with, you know, swashbuckling and, and pirates and and modern major generals and policemen and, and everything in it. So it's it's very charming. Some of the humor uh, is a bit dated. Apparently, 20th Century Fox, when they got the cut of the movie, took out about 20 minutes worth of jokes that they deemed too offensive even for audiences in 1982. I've watched interviews with Ted Hamilton, and, and he mentioned some of the jokes that they took out. And 
20th Century Fox made absolutely the right call taking him out. But what remains is relatively uh, inoffensive, funny. It has a, a nice, happy ending to it. It's a very nice musical comedy, but you know, not one that uh, most people have heard of. Uh, just just given its its uh, you know troubled production and the fact that it you know vanished without a trace upon release, but lives on as somewhat of a of a cult classic. Wow, I'm gonna have to see this one. That sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, so there is some innuendo uh, humor in it. So. Just be cautious with uh, younger viewers, but you know, for for teenagers and up, it can be a, it can be a lot of fun. Okay, so Jimmy, what's what's your first pick? I guess I should explain what mm-hmm. I'm going for here because there are different kinds of bad movies. I'm I'm a, a, a bit of an aficionado of bad movies. I've watched loads of them, uh, many of them from like the 1950s, uh, you know, black and white sci-fi movies that are not up to the standards of modern sci-fi movies. But there's kind of a range and some are on the good side. So I'm not going to be going for them. Others are mediocre. And then there are some that are, that are actually bad in various respects, but they're not painfully bad. They're entertainingly bad. There are movies that are painfully bad that are just incredibly difficult to watch. So my first pick for an entertainingly bad movie is Plan 9 from Outer Space by Ed Wood. And Edward D. Wood Jr. is widely regarded inaccurately as the worst director of all time. He certainly was not a competent director. If you watch Plan 9 from Outer Space, everything about it is incompetent except the soundtrack. The music in Plan 9 from Outer Space is actually pretty good. It's a little bombastic, but it's pretty good. Everything else about the movie, though, is incompetent. The plotting is incompetent. The dialogue is incompetent. The acting is incompetent. The directing is incompetent. The sets are incompetent. You know, they're at one point in a cemetery, and you can tell the tombstones are made out of cardboard. Um, it's, it's just, it, the casting is incompetent. Everything about it is incompetent except the soundtrack. What the movie is about is, um, a series of, it's, it's about the ninth plan in a series of plans being executed by a group of aliens who want to prove their existence to mankind. So this is in the 1950s. It's in, during the UFO craze after the Kenneth Arnold sighting of 1947. And one of the things you find when you look back at fiction from that period is it will sometimes have aliens being exasperated that they can't get people to believe in them. And I've seen that in comics, and that's prominent in this film. The aliens really want to prove their existence to humanity. Now, some humans know about them. You know, the military in the movie knows about the aliens. In fact, they, the military, even at one, a, a general in the military, even says that the aliens killed a town of human beings. A small town, I'll admit, but a town nevertheless. But other people don't believe in them. And we have an airline pilot uh, who has an encounter with a UFO in a plane. The plane set is incompetent. They have a shower curtain at the back of the cockpit. And so you have these aliens who really want to prove their existence to humanity. And they decide to do that by resurrecting the Earth dead. Uh, via long-distance electrode shot into the pineal pituitary gland of the recent dead. And so they they raise, effectively they're electronic zombies, they raise Bela Lugosi from the dead, 
And Bella Lugosi is barely in this film. Ed Wood was a friend of Bella Lugosi, and Bella Lugosi's health was declining. You know, he was famous for playing Dracula, but he his career had really tanked, and he had s- suffered with drug addiction. And Ed was one of his friends, and he was taking some footage of Bella Lugosi, basically coming out of his house and smelling a flower and things like that for some kind of film project. And then Bella died. And so Ed wanted to make a film starring Bela Lugosi because that would be good for business. In fact, it was part of how he got funding. Actually, to get funding for this film, he and the rest of the cast joined a Baptist church in Hollywood and all got baptized. But they got the funding for the film, but now there's no Bella. So he hired his wife's chiropractor to play Bella Lugosi for most of the film, except the chiropractor looks nothing like Bella Lugosi. And so he's lurking around with his cape over his face most of the time. And so they've raised Bella Lugosi. They also raised Tor Johnson. Tor Johnson was a Swedish wrestler. He was enormous. And he didn't speak English really well. But they they raised Tor Johnson from the dead. And he's kind of one of the iconic images from this film. He's enormous and he's blubbery, but he's got this kind of blanked out zombie expression. You see a lot of Tor Johnson masks made based on his appearance in this film. And they also raise Vampira. Vampira was a Los Angeles horror host. She had a late night show where she'd introduce movies, you know, horror movies and make jokes about them and stuff. Well, Ed Wood got Vampira to be in this movie. And so the aliens raise, raise these deceased individuals but they don't end up actually proving their existence to mankind because their plan goes horribly wrong and their flying saucer ends up catching on fire and exploding. But it's it's a very entertaining movie. It has often been voted the worst movie of all time, but that is far from the truth. I was once, I mean, anything by the director Coleman Francis is far worse than anything by Ed Wood. For example, Coleman Francis's movie uh, Red Zone Cuba, I've never actually been able to make it all the way through. He also has others like Skydivers, which is just cinematic. It's a cinematic sleeping pill. And another movie he made starring Tor Johnson was The Beast of Yucca Flats, where Tor Johnson is this hideously mutated guy who got in an atomic blast at Yucca Flats. I was once watching a... Um, a commentary on the Beast of Yucca Flats by Larry Blamire, who was the director and principal actor of another really good movie called The Lost Skeleton of Cadavera. And Larry Blamire is an aficionado of bad films, and he was commenting about you know how many people say that Plan 9 is the worst. It's a, it's a bottom-of-the-barrel film. But really, The Beast of Yucca Flats is at the bottom of of another barrel that's below the barrel that Plan 9 is at the bottom of. And so Plan 9 is not far from the worst film ever made. It is very incompetent, and it's bad, but it's entertainingly bad. And I actually have a question, Jimmy, I don't if you know this or not. I heard a rumor mm-hmm. that Ed Wood wrote a lot of the script for Plan 9 while he was on the phone, and that that would explain some of the strange dialogue. Is that true? I haven't heard that. It wouldn't surprise me if he wrote a lot of it when he probably was drunk, but because he apparently did do some drinking. 
but I've seen other Ed Wood movies and the dialogue is not notably better in the other movies. <laughs> but you do get some real gems. Like there's one moment where Eros, the head, one of the principal aliens, is talking to humans on on the flying saucer and he's berating them. And he refers to your ancient juvenile <laughs> minds. And I love that oxymoron. You know, it's ancient Juvenile. And it's juvenile. You know, how does that it's work? Stupid, Strange. stupid. <laughs> so uh, my first pick is one that I discovered a few years ago when they released a 35th anniversary Blu-ray. And that is Yor, the Hunter from the Future. And um, yeah. I'm glad you know about this one, Jimmy, because I, I have a hard time finding people who've heard of this movie. It is an Italian sci-fi film. Uh, starring Reb Brown, who's been in a lot of kind of strange 80s sci-fi fare. But in this film, he plays a barbarian named Yor. And what I love about this movie is that it's basically like if you took Conan the Barbarian and Star Wars and One Million Years B.C. and a bunch of other fantasy and sci-fi movies and threw them into a blender – like everything they could do in this movie they did there is robe there are robots there are spaceships there are apparently they, they look like paper mache and dinosaurs that attack people at one point your hang glides on a bat so that he can attack purple cavemen it is just so strange and i love how this movie opens the, like the opening title sequence has yours theme song and it, I, I think, I think this is on YouTube. You might even be able to look up the opening title sequence, but it's just you're running through these craggy hills. And meanwhile, there's this song going on. Yours world. He's the man. And it's, it's great. It's great. I had seen this movie before I actually saw it all the way through. I had seen it on one of those internet review shows where they were, you know, panning it. And of course, but I'm just like, I need to see this movie. This looks amazing. And so my brother and I got the 35th anniversary Blu-ray. My brother and I sat down and watched it. And we're like, this is supposed to be a bad movie, but we're having, we're legitimately having fun. We are having the time of our lives with this movie. And there's so many unintentionally funny lines. There's this scene where Yor and his companions are, are building a raft and as they're twining rope to, you know, lash the logs together, one of the guys says, we're going to need a lot more hemp before we're through. <laughs> and of course, the joke I saw on the Internet was you'll need a lot more hemp before this movie is through. But, but no, I, I, I genuinely enjoyed it. It takes kind of a strange turn about maybe two thirds of the way through the movie where Yor and his, his friends end up on this island that's controlled by this overlord who has a robot army and they desire, as he put it, to harvest Yor's seed so that he can create a master race. But of course, Yor and his friends escape and there are lots of crazy explosions and all kinds of awesome stuff. If, if any of this sounds like it's up your alley, Watch your The Hunter from the Future. I heard somewhere that it's actually based off of an Argentinian comic book, 
Mm. But I can't confirm that. But yeah, it it's a lot of fun. So, uh, Victor, what's your uh, what's your next pick? Sticking with my theme here of early 1980s Australian musical satire comedies, the next one is The Return of Captain Invincible. And this is not a sequel. That's just the name of the movie, The Return of Captain Invincible. And this movie came out, you know, in the wake of Superman, you know, the motion picture, the whole, you know, superhero mania of the early 1980s. And it stars uh, Alan Arkin as the washed up Captain Invincible who has to, you know, regain his mojo so he can fight Mr. Midnight, who is played by Christopher Lee. And uh, Christopher Lee gets a song and dance number in this, too. So if you've ever wanted to hear Christopher Lee sing a couple of songs and, and do some dancing, this is probably the one for you. But the movie starts off. So Captain Invincible saved basically the United States during World War II. He took down Hitler uh, almost single handedly. And for his troubles, he is rewarded by being brought into the you know the House Un-American uh, Committee and basically stripped of his standing. And uh, for the past 30 years, he's been drinking in Australia. Basically, he's forgotten how to fly. He's forgotten how to use his super magnetism power. And uh, unfortunately for the world, Mr. Midnight has stolen the hypno ray. The U.S. has developed a hypno ray. And uh, Mr. Midnight has stolen it. And his nefarious plan involves increasing crime rates in the city to get ethnic populations to move out to the suburbs, at which point the cities will be ethnically pure again and he will use submarines to blow up the suburbs to take out so it's this weird uh plan that mr midnight has and the world desperately needs uh captain invincible to come back so captain invincible has to overcome his alcoholism he has to overcome you know his feelings of betrayal being shunned by the world he can't tell the good guys from the bad guys anymore he's he has to overcome vacuum cleaners there are you know uh, parasitic vacuum cleaners that he's attacked by there's a, a shootout in a in a delicatessen, but thanks to Captain Invincible, the day is saved and uh, Mr. Midnight's plans are foiled. And uh, throughout, we get some um, some songs, uh, a few of which were written by Richard O'Brien, who did the music for um, and wrote the Rocky Horror Picture Show and its follow up Shock Treatment. So the music is is kind of hit and miss, but it's an interesting film. The pacing's a little weird. The humor again is kind of dated. It it didn't get any sort of reception at all when it first came out but worth looking out if you're into uh, that sort of thing which uh, i am as you were describing it i was like what exactly is bad about this movie i want to see it <laughs> yeah what's interesting is it's you know so we have the incredibles which came out in 2004 i think and that kind of has you know newsreel footage of the superheroes you know being pushed aside and and this movie actually opens with a newsreel montage that kind of sets up you know his his rise and fall of captain invincible and so from that perspective it's kind of groundbreaking in that i think it's one of the first you know movies certainly where where they've addressed you know that aspect of being a superhero and yeah it's 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 an interesting film all right jimmy so what's your number two pick well my number two pick is it's entertainingly bad but the thing is it's entertainingly bad deliberately so this movie is not due to incompetence the, uh, this movie is one I already mentioned, The Lost Skeleton of Cadavra, which was written and directed by Larry Blamire and starred in by him and his friends. It came out in 2001. It's a black and white, and it's a deliberate parody of bad 1950s sci-fi movies. So this is actually a competent 
execution of incompetence. In fact, one of the characters in the movie, the actor plays a character named Ranger Brad, and Larry Blamire, in coaching him, told him, okay, I want you, because this was a common practice back in the 1950s when you're making zero-budget movies. He told the actor, I want you to pretend that the only reason you're in this film is because you own a Ranger uniform. And the actor said, well, I think then I would act really badly. And Larry Blamire says, yes, exactly. So it's deliberately bad. Plot of the movie is that there is a a lost skeleton in Cadaver Cave, and the skeleton wants to come back to life and rule the world. But there are, and there are different competing factions that are around the skeleton. Our, our hero is a scientist named Dr. Paul Armstrong, who is very into science. He is all about doing science. And he and his wife, Betty, have come to the woods to look for a meteor made of that rarest of all elements, atmospherium. <laughs> and so he wants to get atmospherium to do science with. Also, however, there is a another scientist who has come to the woods, and his name is Roger Fleming. And he wants to use the skeleton to rule the world. But in order to come back to life, the skeleton needs atmospherium. There's another problem, which is that all skeletons have hated Roger Fleming since he was a boy. And so there's natural antipathy between Roger and the lost skeleton. Our third group of characters, oh, and also Roger needs a companion because he doesn't want to seem unusual to the Armstrongs or other people. So he makes a girlfriend for himself. He uses a an alien transmute array to turn four forest creatures into a woman, played by Larry Blamire's wife. And the woman is named Animala. She behaves like an animal. When she goes to drink, she uses her tongue to lap up water rather than than tipping a cup back. She has a rudimentary grasp of English, so she will say things that she's been told to say, like when Roger is uh, talking to the other characters and he says, isn't that right, Pammy? Which is what he's decided to call Animala in the presence of others. She says, always agree. And despite the fact she's an animal, she also can dance in an amazingly alluring way and hypnotize people. Our third set of characters is a pair of aliens who have landed, and they have a problem because their rocket ship needs more fuel, and it runs on atmospherium. Uh, the aliens are named Lattice and Crowbar. <laughs> they are from the planet Marva, and they are fascinated by how different this Earth world is compared to our planet, Marva, and yet it is the same. Earth, Marva, Earth, Marva, (laughs) I wonder. And they decide to impersonate human beings. So they come up on the cabin in the woods that Paul and Betty Armstrong are staying in, and they are initially daunted by the staircase leading up to the door. Because they have never encountered a staircase before. And so they, they're confronted by this series of 
of flat planes rising gradually in the atmosphere. And they eventually, <laughs> they hugging the wall behind them, they manage to make their way up the staircase. Then they have to deal with the front door. Why will it not open? <laughs> Because they're expecting an automatic door. And we've got lots of great comedy with with them. Eventually, the skeleton gets revived and it makes the aliens dance, which is fatal for aliens, you know, if, if they go on dancing. It's, it's just not meant for them. And it wants to force Lattice, to ma- the female alien, to marry the skeleton. But the aliens also brought a mutant with them on their ship. And the story ends with with a climactic battle between the mutant and the skeleton, which is realized exactly the way you would imagine an actor struggling with a totally inanimate skeleton. (laughs) (laughs) And this movie is just genius. There is so much about it that's awesome. Like, the dialogue is great. There's, at one point, the aliens are trying to impose a psychic message on Betty uh, Armstrong to give them the atmospherium, and she interprets it as an Amish terrarium, (laughs) at which point Paul says, that makes no sense, honey. I mean, the Amish don't live under glass. They live in open air like us. What are you talking about, Amish terrarium? And uh, there's a scene where where Roger, the scientist, the other, the evil scientist, meets Ranger Brad. And uh, Ranger Brad says to him, he's asking directions, how do you get to Cadaver Cave? And Roger Fleming says, you know, I need to find where is cadaver cave and ranger brad tells him and then says hey you don't you don't believe that those old legends about cadaver cave do you and roger says ranger brad i'm a scientist i don't believe in anything (laughs) 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 so it's a it's an awesome movie i highly recommend it i'm definitely gonna check that out that sounds like a lot of fun my next pick is one that I saw quite a bit as a kid because uh, I saw it on television and I actually taped it on our VCR, and that is Jaws 3D, also known as Jaws 3. Um, it was apparently filmed in 3D, but when they showed it on television, they dropped the D part for obvious reasons. You couldn't show 3D on 90s televisions. It's interesting is about where Jaws, essentially the plot is Jaws attacks SeaWorld. There is this new SeaWorld park that has been set up where they have a lot of these neat underwater tunnels that are made of glass that you can go through and kind of walk on the seafloor and have sea life swim around you. There is, of course, the, the dolphin shows for which SeaWorld is famous. But at one point they catch a great white shark and they decide, oh, we are going to be the first aquarium in the world to exhibit a great white shark, even though sharks of that kind don't do well in captivity. The shark, of course, dies, and you're like, wait, a Jaws movie and the shark just dies because it's in captivity? Well, it turns out it was not actually a full-grown great white shark, even though it was the right size. It was a baby shark, and it was apparently the child of a... Yeah, of a much larger megalodon-sized great white that is out there, which soon starts attacking the people of SeaWorld. And there are just some ridiculous action set pieces. It's a lot of fun. There's some very odd moments where things kind of come towards the camera, and you're like, oh, I see. 
that's where the 3D was supposed to be. But watching it on a TV, it makes no sense. There is a very gruesome scene where uh, some visitors going through the undersea part discover that there is a severed head floating in one of the tanks that is the remains of one of the shark's victims. And the head kind of slowly floats towards the camera. <laughs> like okay um in fact there's an earlier scene where a fish head does that very same thing and at the 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 final encounter in the film where the huge shark attacks kind of the control room from which all of sea world like you know they they manage the whole park kind of like the th- the control room in Jurassic Park actually but in any case the shark attacks and they manage to stick a grenade in its mouth set the grenade off And then the shark's jaws, like its actual bony jaws, survive the explosion and come and float towards the camera. (laughs) And it's this very awful CGI, early CGI shot. And (laughs) I know that on, on very few technical merits is Jaws 3 a good movie. But just on nostalgia value alone from how many times I watched this film as a kid, I always get a kick out of it. So... And it's, I, I think it's prob, I probably like it more than Jaws 4, <laughs> the, Re- the Revenge, which I'll admit I have not seen in a while, but, um, and, and may actually technically be worse. I remember in, in Jaws 4, there's that scene where Michael Caine has to swim away from the shark, and when he gets on the boat, his clothes are dry. <laughs> yeah. So there's a lot of technical flaws like that. Um, I like the Jaws sequels, even though they are obviously inferior to the classic um, by Steven Spielberg. But yeah, that is my second pick, Jaws 3. Um, as you can see, a lot of creature-related movies on my list. So, uh, Victor, what about you? What's your next pick, number three? Continuing on the theme of musicals, as well as sequels that do not live up to the uh, expectations of the first movie, I'd like to uh, respectfully submit Blues Brothers 2000, which uh, is a sequel to the 1980, I believe, comedy, uh, The Blues Brothers, uh, which is one of my top five comedy movies. I know it uh, makes a lot of people's top comedy movies. The Vatican, a number of years ago, recognized it as a you know, particularly Catholic movie, which uh, was uh, very nice to see, given its themes of you know self-sacrifice. and We're on a mission from God. Accepting God's plan. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And it's it's a it's a great movie. There's lots of uh, musical numbers from uh, you know James Brown, Aretha Franklin, Ray Charles. Big song and dance directed by John Landis, who is known for you know going big with his production and, and, and direction. It did not need a sequel though. And in 1998, that's what we got was Blues Brothers 2000, uh, which is a sequel and almost a remake it attempts to almost beat for beat in certain cases attempts to copy the original as as uh Dan Aykroyd as Elwood J Blues is released from prison uh learns that his brother Jake who's played by John Belushi has has passed away just as John Belushi has and and now he has to find a new family so along the way he picks up John Goodman as a club singer and that becomes the uh, the the backbone of the new Blues Brothers band Joe Morton who plays an initially, uh, uh, you know, antagonistic police captain? Eventually, sees the light in a uh, tent revival church service. Um, and joins the band, 
And the plot of the movie is chased by the police, of course, as, as they were in the first one. They have to get to the big show and, and put on the show, which in this case takes place at uh, Queen Musette's uh, mansion in New Orleans. And a battle of the bands is happening there. And the band that they're up against is the Louisiana Gator Boys, which is basically a who's who of jazz and blues musicians that were you know, still alive in 1998, B.B. King, Billy Preston, Lou Rawls, Joshua Redman, Eric Clapton, Jack Dezenet, Coco Taylor, Grover Washington Jr., Jimmy Vaughn, Steve Winwood. Basically, every, uh, you know, major blues musician they could find is is in their, uh, their competition here. And I won't give away the ending, but it's not a bad movie. It's except by comparison. They, you know, try to do, like I mentioned, some beat by beat remakes of the original movie. It doesn't really work as well. I watched this movie with our younger kids who are um, nine and 11. I had to fast forward some certain scenes because, you know, it's a 1998 comedy, but they loved uh, the parts with the cars crashing into each other. There's, you know, some of that that they've brought back from the first movie. But what really makes this movie enjoyable for me is the musical numbers, which are very well choreographed, staged. Erica Badu is, uh, you know, has, has a big uh, number there where the Blues Brothers band has been turned into zombies by the voodoo queen and, and have to put on a performance for her. So it's, it's a lot of fun, but considering that the original Blues Brothers movie exists, there's really no reason that this should except to basically watch the, uh, the musical uh, numbers. Nice. So, uh, Jimmy, what is your number three? So I guess my next pick is going to be one that I often watch at Christmas time. It is a 1964 movie called Santa Claus Conquers the Martians. And uh, if you watch the Mystery Science Theater 3000 version of it, it's particularly entertaining. The basic plot of the movie is you have on the planet Mars, you have Martians. They all have really creative names, like the King Martian is named Kimar, and the Mother Martian is named Momar, and the Girl Martian is named Gurmar, and the Boy Martian is named Bomar. And the Girl Martian, incidentally, is played by Pia Zadora as a child. But the Martian parents realize that their children are listless and uninspired and too focused on learning and they're not normal children but they watch lots of earth television and so and they find the figure of santa claus inspiring and so the martians decide to go to earth and kidnap santa claus in order to inspire children on mars again and so they go to earth but when they do that they find all of these bell ringing santa clauses you know, in front of all kinds of stores. They don't know which is the real Santa Claus. So they, since, you know, kidnapping is apparently in their genes, to solve the problem of not knowing which is the real Santa Claus, they decide to kidnap Earth children. And so they kidnap a couple of Earth children who then guide them to the true Santa Claus, and they kidnap him as well. They take him back to Mars, and Santa Claus is taking all this in stride. You know, he's a jolly old elf, and so he's enjoying this Martian adventure. Um, he's not at all traumatized by this, and he comforts Betty and Billy, the two Earth children. They get to uh, Mars. He has a lot of fun with the Martians, but not everything is well on Mars because there are Martians who don't like 
this idea of inspiring children to be playful and have fun. This is, this is like some crazy liberal idea and they want the traditional serious Martian children. So they're opposed to Santa Claus and sabotage his Martian workshop so that it makes toys wrong. Meanwhile, one of the comic relief character Martians, a, a character named Droppo, uh, loves Santa Claus. And he, he finds one of Santa Claus's spare suits and impersonates Santa Claus and goes around trying to do Santa Claus-like things, even though he's a bumbling comic relief character. Eventually, the stick-in-the-mud Martians kidnap Droppo, thinking he's the real Santa Claus when he's not. But then the real Santa Claus shows up and thwarts their plans. And so everything ends well with the real Santa Claus and Betty and Billy going back to Earth and uh, Droppo taking over as the new Martian Santa Claus to bring Christmas joy to Martian children everywhere. They should do a sequel where they try to kidnap the Easter Bunny. (laughs) (laughs) So I had to include a Godzilla movie somewhere on my list. Oh, there are a bunch of good bad ones. Oh, yes. And I I could have gone the easy route and picked Godzilla versus Megalon because that's one that people often point to. But I decided to go with one that I actually rewatched recently because they were doing a marathon on Turner Classic Movies of Godzilla films. And I watched with my family Ibera, Horror oh. of the Deep. Yeah. Yeah. Giant also, shrimp. Gi- a, a literal <laughs> jumbo shrimp. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Also known in America as Godzilla versus the Sea Monster. And this film actually has an interesting history because it was originally supposed to be a Japanese-produced King Kong film. Now, Toho had the rights. Toho is the studio behind Godzilla and a lot of other kaiju films like Rodan and Mothra. They had acquired the rights from Universal to use King Kong when they made King Kong versus Godzilla in 1963. They also made King Kong Escapes, which is another really so bad it's a good movie. Um, and I considered putting that one on the list, except I have not seen it all the way through yet. Um, because it was on TV and I didn't get a chance to see the whole film. But I decided on Ibera Horror of the Deep because it was going to be a King Kong movie, but Toho decided that Godzilla would have more marquee value. So they decided to replace Kong with Godzilla. The problem is you can still see in some parts of the script where they intended Kong. It takes place on an island. I think this is actually the first of the films that establishes Godzilla having an island lair. Um, but they, where he like stays regular. Monster Island? Yeah, yeah. Except this island is actually called, I think it's Solgel Island, is this particular island that they're on. But in any case, they find Godzilla asleep in a cave and he's revived by lightning at one point in the film. And lightning is what actually powers the Toho version of King Kong. And there's a reason for that, because in Godzilla versus King Kong, it was originally meant to be Frankenstein versus King Kong. And so Frankenstein is powered by lightning, but then they subbed Godzilla in for for Frankenstein. 
And they transferred the electrical effects to Kong in that movie, and they're carried over in in this movie, but now applied to Godzilla. Yeah, and Toho eventually did use Frankenstein in Frankenstein Conquers the World. And the sequel, War of the Gargantuas. War of the Gargantuans, yeah. And for some reason, they decided not to have Frankenstein fight Godzilla, but they put him up against another monstrous dinosaur called Baragon. But uh, yeah, the, the, the history behind these movies is so fascinating. And uh, another thing in the film that kind of points to King Kong is that at one point Godzilla seems a little bit infatuated with the female lead. He kind of stares at her longingly and then falls asleep in her presence. And I'm like, what? <laughs> when I learned that King Kong was supposed to be in the film, I'm like, ah, that makes total sense. Um, the island is actually infested by terrorists who are building a heavy water factory to try and acquire nuclear weapons. And our heroes are actually shipwrecked on the island because our main character um, was trying to search for his brother who was lost at sea. He tried to win a boat in a dance-a-thon in which I, I think he ended up la- – or his friends last – what is it, 18 hours or some crazy amount of time dancing? They don't win the boat, so they hijack a boat, which was in the midst of being hijacked by another man who was on the run from the law because he robbed a bank or some such. He stole a lot of money. And so them and the bank robber, but it turns out the bank robber is one of those criminals with a heart of gold kind of characters because he ends up being one of the best characters in the movie but they they end up in a storm in which they are shipwrecked by a giant lobster claw that comes out of the ocean and they end up on this island it turns out the terrorists know that there is this huge shrimp and apparently ibira is just japanese for shrimp yes or prawn or whatnot (laughs) so there's this giant shrimp in the waters around the island which the terrorists use to keep people from escaping because they are they are using native indigenous people to create this serum for them which they use to repel the giant shrimp whenever their terrorist boats come to and from the island and they've actually been taking a lot of these um indigenous slaves from Mothra's island infant island so we have mothra in the film but she is asleep for most of the film oh. <laughs> it it routinely cuts back to mothra in her butterfly form asleep with her worshippers trying to wake her up she eventually wakes up towards the end of the movie to get everyone off the island before the heavy water factory goes critical and explodes this film also contains what i believe is the worst fight in the entire godzilla franchise mm-hmm. because a giant condor swoops in out of nowhere and godzilla fights this thing through a series of quick cuts and egregious shaky cam. I thought you were going to say it. it's the one where Godzilla battles the shrimp and rips its arm off. Yeah. <laughs> rips its arms <laughs> off, yeah. After playing, like, volleyball with it with a boulder. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that shot ended up being reused as footage for several other Godzilla movies. Um, I believe it's in Godzilla's Revenge, which is routinely po- pointed at as the worst one in the franchise. But I, I really enjoy them all. 
all the Godzilla movies for different reasons. And by the way, they're under the title Godzilla versus the Sea Monster. There is an MST3K version of this that people can watch. Oh, nice. Is there really? Yes. Now I, good. Now I have to watch that. Yeah. Because I, I just like this movie. I actually recently, the version I saw on TV was actually the Japanese version with subtitles. And I enjoyed that a lot better than the English dub. I thought some of the, the dubbing in the, the American version of this movie was very annoying, especially that one character um, who's kind of like the comic relief. They give him his voice really grates on me in the dubbed version for some reason. But yeah, I had to include at least one Godzilla movie on this list. And I think we actually have enough time for one more go around. So uh, so let's do it. Victor, what's number four for you? Yeah, so sticking with my theme of uh, early 1980s musicals <laughs> that are bad. No, this is, a, uh, this is more of an honorable mention because it is insane. Viewer discretion uh, advised for this, not for, for young audiences. But it is a Golan and Globus film. They're, uh, you know, known as, you know, canon films. They made the Ninja movies, the Delta Force movies, Breakin', Breakin' 2, Electric Boogaloo. And this movie is called The Apple. And it's from 1980. It is a musical. It is a parable or allegory of some sort about the, the Garden of Eden. The movie starts with the creation of Adam in 1994. They enter with Bibby, who is Eve. They enter the 1994 World Vision Song Contest. You know, they're tempted by the music industry. There's a totalitarian government. There's hippies. And the movie ends with the rapture, which is what ultimately saves our heroes. And along the way, you get really crazy, over-the-top musical numbers. Costumes are crazy and uh, insane. It's worth worth watching at least once. You won't forget it. And uh, that's my uh, my honorable mention this uh, this week. All right. So, Jimmy, do you have one more for us? I do. I'll also have an honorable mention uh, after we do this. But um, since, uh, Victor, you included a superhero movie and Thomas, since you included a Japanese movie, I'm going to fuse those. And for my fourth pick, I'm going to give you a Japanese superhero movie. Now, there are lots of bad Japanese superhero movies. But one that came out fairly recently is called Big Man Japan. In Japanese, its title literally translates as giant Japanese human, but Big Man Japan is just the better title. This is a mockumentary, so it's another, like Lost Skeleton, it's deliberately bad. It's about a down-on-his-luck superhero named Big Man Japan who has the ability to become a giant. And he's not the original Big Man Japan. He's actually the sixth So there have been five Big Man Japans before him. And in particular, Big Man Japan number four, his grandfather, was so beloved. So everyone is always comparing our Big Man Japan to his beloved grandfather. Our Big Man Japan, he's living in the modern day. He's down on his luck. He lives in a tiny apartment. He doesn't even tell people that he's Big Man Japan. They go to one of his favorite restaurants. It's like a sushi place. And they're interviewing the staff. It's like, did you know he's Big Man Japan? It's like, what? Really? You know, because he's not really proud of where he is in life. He doesn't want to boast about being Big Man Japan. But he does have work to do because Japan is constantly being attacked by monsters. And whenever there's a monster attack, he needs to go become giant and battle the monster. That's what he does for the government. That's how he makes his 
pitiful income. Um, and it's not particularly easy for him to do this. Now, I will give a, a warning. There's one monster in particular that's in this that is not for young children. So okay. you need to fast forward past that. But the way he becomes giant is he goes to a nuclear power plant and they hook up alligator clips to his nipples and shock him with electricity, <laughs> which forces him to grow. So becoming big man Japan is incredibly painful for him. And then he has to go fight a monster. And then he doesn't get a lot of public respect because everybody loves his grandfather and preferred him and is constantly criticizing what he does. Also, he's not a fan of Americans. He's He's got, they, they talk to him about it and he's got resentments from World War II. So he's not a fan of Americans. And he ends up in, I won't spoil it, but he ends up in an incredibly ironic position at the end of the movie, given his proclivities. Okay. And uh, did you want to do your um, honorable mention? Yeah, sure. Um, it's hard. Now, this one is actually painful. But since we're doing, since, since we're doing, you know, bad movies, it, it is one of the worst ever made. Manos, The Hands of Fate. Oh. And you want to watch a Rift version of this. Uh -huh. You don't want to watch it by itself without commentary because it's too painful. You want to watch either the Mystery Science Theater version of it or the Rift Tracks version. Basically, this film was, and there's so much incompetence in, in, about this film, but it was, it was made in West Texas in the 19, in the mid 1960s. It was filmed in color. But the soundtrack was complete. It was like filmed in silent film, you know, without an audio track. And then they dubbed in an audio track for it using like four actors to play all the parts. The nominal plot is about a, a family, a man, a woman and their daughter who are taking a trip into the desert and they take a wrong turn on their way to their destination and end up at this lodge out in the middle of nowhere. And the lodge has a caretaker whose name is Torgo. Torgo is unbelievably bizarre. He's this little hippie guy who's meant to be a satyr. So he's meant to have goat legs under his pants. But he put on the goat leg props backwards. And so the actor looks like he has giant knees. <laughs> And Torgo hobbles around and he's always talking about the master would not like this. The master will not be pleased. And he's referring to a cult leader that has a whole. So you've got this lodge is really owned by this cult. Torgo is kind of the cult leader's assistant. The cult leader himself, the master, walks around he, he in robes. He spreads his arms and it's clear his robes have images of giant fingers on them. Because manos means hands in Spanish. So manos, hands of fate. Um, the master also has a bunch of like women who are part of the cult that are dressed in diaphanous gowns that, uh, that get into fights about who they can be affectionate with. And, you know, they, they kind of have a fight over the, uh, over the husband in the family that's gotten stuck here. And wow, it's, it's, it's only like an hour long, a little bit more. So it is feature length technically, but wow, is it bad. And you definitely want to watch it with accompanying riffs. Okay. Yeah, I've definitely heard of that one. It seems to have a reputation. <laughs> yeah. Still not as bad as Coleman Francis, but really bad. 
And a few years ago, someone actually made like an 8-bit retro video game version of it too, which is uh, worth playing like a, a platformer. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's kind of fun. Wow. So for my last one, I'm going to go with one that I actually saw for the first time a couple of years ago. Um, my brother and I have this um, tradition where every Halloween we pick a couple of older sci-fi or horror movies that we haven't seen and and we watch them for Halloween. And I think it was two years ago, one of the ones we picked was It, The Terror from Beyond Space. and Which Alien I'm, is based on. I know, right? It It is very much a proto-alien. It is about... An astronaut who is on Mars, um, he's picked up by these other astronauts who arrive, and they believe that this guy they're picking up has killed all the other astronauts who were sent with him to Mars. He pleads his innocence, but they're like, no, we, we know you did it. Um, by the way, I'm glad that very early on in the movie, they figure out what's really going on. I thought it was going to be one of those films where they think he's the one killing people through the whole movie. But no, it it becomes obvious right away that a monster has snuck aboard the ship with them. And by the way, whenever they cut to the rocket as it is flying through space, it is very obviously a toy rocket that they are pulling on a string or some such against a background of stars it my brother and i just burst out laughing whenever they cut back to the silly rocket and the alien himself is your classic kind of rubber suit monster um nothing like the xenomorph from alien at all and he he starts picking people off uh, across the ship i actually did enjoy a lot the scene where the one crewman ends up stuck in a corner with a flamethrower. <laughs> and he, now, first of all, the wisdom of setting off a flamethrower on a rocket <laughs> is a whole other thing. But yeah, he's, he's warding off this monster and you think he's going to die through the whole thing. They end up abandoning most of the ship and going to kind of the cockpit module, um, which has this sort of cardboard door when the monster starts breaking through it. It's very obviously cardboard or paper mache and stuff. And it takes them the whole movie to figure out the solution I did at the beginning of the film, which is vent the compartment, vent the ship seal the monster in a compartment and vent the atmosphere. They finally do that at the end of the film. <laughs> but no, yeah, if if you like cheesy old black and white sci-fi, go for it. It the terror from beyond space was a lot of fun. And it looks like the it the monster was played by Ray Crash Corrigan who is a uh, was a, a famous stunt Stunt actor, but also matinee cowboy in a number of, uh, you know, cowboy movies and serials from the 30s and, and 40s. So it was, it was good to see his career continuing uh, there playing it. Nice. That's cool. Well, we've uh, run out of time for now. But before we go, I'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this podcast possible, including Thomas M., Patricia J., Tina J., John G., and Joseph L., their generous donations allow us to continue to create the secrets of movies and TV shows and all of our content here at StarQuest. And you can join them today by going to sqpn.com slash give. And now we'd like to hear from you, our listeners. Do you have a list of your favorite So Bad It's Good movies? Please let us know. You can contact us by email at secrets at sqpn.com 
Or you can leave a comment on our Facebook page or on YouTube or Twitter. Or you can visit us on the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord. And until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of movies and TV shows. Thank you. And just remember, you're next. (laughs) (laughs) I hope not. (laughs) And Victor Lambs, thank you as well. Thanks. This was a lot of fun. And until next time, once again, I am Thomas Salerno. Thank you for listening to the secrets of movies and TV shows on StarQuest. Here's another show on the StarQuest Network you're sure to enjoy. The Secrets of Star Wars. Find it wherever fine podcasts are found or at sqpn.com slash Star Wars. We'd like to thank Patrick McCaffrey of Moonshadow Studios for editing this episode. To have your audio edited professionally and with care, check out more of Patrick's work at moonshadowstudios.biz. That's moonshadowstudios.biz. 